Welcome to uh, Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. How are you doing this week, Katie? I'm good. You? Good. Look what I got. I got my Useful Idiots mug. That's which, great. Which people can order. What do we have for uh, the food the food groups? What do we have for Democrats suck this week? Uh, well, I mean, honestly, there's so much, and we'll get into it with the with the convention. But um, I wanted to give a, a shout out to the Dems of Massachusetts, um, and also it's a nice callback to our our really interesting interview, I think, with um, with Alex Morse. Yeah, and everyone should check that out if anyone, for whatever reason, missed it. Really, really, really great. Uh, I think interview really important story with Alex Morris, who's running for Congress. So it seemed like it was um, suspicious, right? We it seemed like a setup. I think to us, it seemed like you know there's a much bigger, a much bigger deal was being made out of 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 what actually happened. So Morse again was disinvited from um, uh, Massachusetts Young Dems events because, according to a letter that was posted at UMass Amherst. Uh, newspaper, the Collegian, the Daily Collegian, I believe it's called. This letter kind of was an open letter that condemned Morse for allegedly um, using his power to um, meet and date and have sex with students. Also, it said that he went to Massachusetts Dems meetings uh, to meet students. It turned out, of course, he had been to one of those. Uh, it said he engaged in in stuff online that was understood by by y- pe- young people to be intimate. People of our generation. People of our generation, yeah. Which is that to convey intimacy, I think was the word. Yeah. Um, And he said at the time he was very clear that he had not violated any of UMass Amherst's um, guidelines. You know, he never dated a student. And to be clear, also, he was an adjunct. He taught one class per semester um, and he never dated one of his students. So it turns out that the people behind this, um, the people behind this letter and this kind of cause and movement um, in- included someone who was a student of Neil's. And again, Neil is the incumbent congressman who Morse is trying to unseat, um, was a student of Neil's. And there was someone else on the uh, Massachusetts Young Dems who they kind of conspired to um to get uh, Morse in trouble. So here's what happened. I'm reading at The Intercept, and The Intercept has done really the the best reporting on this. So reading from their article, College Democrat Chats Reveal Year-Old Plan to Engineer and Leak Alex Morse Accusations. This Will Sink His Campaign, predicted a college Democrat leader hoping to work for Rep. Richard Neal. So what happened was uh, the following. Uh, On October 5th, Morse attended a college Democrats event at a local community college. Neil also appeared and was introduced by Enos. Enos or Ennis, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, who was at the time enrolled in a journalism class Neil taught at UMass Amherst. Neil later told Ennis he was impressed by the event. Ennis claimed in the chats. Morse sat on a panel with Abramson. After the event, Morse reached out to Abramson on Instagram to say it was a pleasure meeting. The two had previously matched on Tinder, Ennis said in the chats, but had never met up. And then it says, to match on Tinder means both parties must swipe in the same direction in order to begin a conversation. Okay, so here are these here are, are these interesting screenshots, okay, between Abramson and Ennis. And again, uh, Ennis and Abramson are students. 
So here are the here are the leaked messages. So this is from Abramson. Again, Abramson is the student who communicated with with Morse. And so uh, Abramson texts not overt, but it's very clear he's not talking to me for no reason. And then the and then uh, there's a screenshot of an exchange between Morse and Abramson, and it says, uh, "Thank you. Good to see you too." And then Morse says, "How's the rest of your weekend?" And then Abramson says, "Pretty good. I went home last night to surprise my mom for her birthday, HBU, right. which is how about you?" And Morse says. Oh, that's nice. How was that? I had an event to go to last night to speak, then had a wine tasting party at a friend's house. Now I'm in North Adams about to march in a parade. Okay, and then Abramson's comment on this exchange uh, is, like, read that message. Also, don't mind me totally leading him on. So that's the smoking gun, apparently, that that show, that show was used to set up uh, Morse as... Uh, guilty of something and uh and then Ennis said this will sink his campaign <laughs> i mean yeah it's, that's pretty it's weak. unbelievable yeah because usually you don't have that stuff like revealed right um yeah. but but we have the we have the receipts and then on top of that it gets worse so then we find out that the um massachusetts that massachusetts dems were involved in this Okay, so another article at The Intercept, this one is done by, again, um, Ryan Graham and Daniel Boguslaw, which is a great last name, also by Ian Higgins, Owen Higgins, I would pronounce, and it's Massachusetts State Party leader told college Democrats to destroy communication records. Uh, Veronica Martinez had coordinated with the students prior to the release of allegations of sexual impropriety against Alex Morse. So the College Democrats of Massachusetts worked with senior members of the Democratic Party to create this letter, to craft this letter. Then they set up the College Dems with um, a lawyer. So the whole thing is just incredibly corrupt and um, shows the Dems up to no good and trying to squash an insurgent, a progressive insurgent candidate. Yeah, and... Uh... I can't imagine that they intended for uh, any of this to come out. Of course not. But the, yeah. but the uh, part of me does wonder, however, if they were indifferent to whether or not it came out, because rather than talking about anything else heading uh. into you know this primary date uh, at the very late stage of the campaign, and Morse is still behind, from what I understand, it's like with these five points back, uh, from what I last uh, saw. Maybe, you know, it's, it would be in the Karl Rove playbook to uh, take a superficial loss in order to shift the conversation mm, to I whether to whether or not. Um, I mean, you, you wouldn't want to come out and say we set them up and fake this right. controversy, but you might not care whether it came out that way, uh, because either way, people are talking about Alex right. Morris having sex right. with college students rather uh, as opposed to Richard Neal taking uh, you know oceans of money from Lockheed Martin and whatever whoever else so I don't know I mean look it's it certainly I'm, I'm glad for Alex who was really impressive on our show and um, and seems like he's an up-and-coming politician and certainly this thing was stupid enough that it, it, it's not gonna harm him uh, long term uh if, if, if with his career and that's great 
but you know, it's it it is possible that in in the short term it's going to have that effect. So, so you know what I should have done for my Democrat suck? I should have just done why Neil is bad. The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is pretty much always going to be the leading fund uh, recipient of, of money, uh, no matter uh, no matter who's in either that or the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Um, but you know, he's been there forever. He's kind of a classic, uh, per, you know, perpetual. Uh, unchallenged uh, incumbent. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable that Morse is even as close as he is because normally that's, that's, that's exactly the kind of figure who doesn't get a primary challenge is, you know, a, a powerful committee chair from a state that's, you know, that has a history of supporting Democrats, but you know he just must not have done enough for the for the district with all that power. Usually, if you take somebody like Chuck Schumer, right, or you know Jerry Nadler, or you know like these very very powerful people who are plugged into uh, read the regulation of let's say Wall Street, they make sure that that those companies do well because it helps their districts and it helps their states. And it's not clear that that's what's going on with uh, with Neil. So mm. maybe that's that's why this opening has been created. You mean that he's not being effective in his show? Yeah, like if you if you're gonna if you're gonna be uh, if you're if you're going to be one of the most powerful people in Congress, you should you should at least make sure that you're shoveling tons and tons of pork to your own district. Uh, and it doesn't sound like that's what has been done. So yeah. you you should be a shill who delivers to your own state as opposed to a shill who just helps absolutely corporations, right? That's the way. It, that's the way that's it the usually way it works. works. Right. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell him that because now I don't want him to start helping his district. Right. We'll have right. to leap this out. So Republicans suck. I, I think we 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 kind of have to get into this whole postal service thing uh, so that people know where we stand on this. Um, I think. As someone who uh, I've been very resentful of, not resentful, I think that's the wrong word. I've been frustrated for, for most of the last four years because for all the things that Trump does on, a, on the policy front, it's it's almost impossible to tell at this point whether um, what he's doing is incredibly serious or not because the, the press reaction is basically identical in every case. Uh, yeah, so... Within a day or two of the coverage, it goes straight to, you know, the Holocaust or the Reichstag or whatever it is. Right. And he's, you know, you have people being quoted about what he's are, what crimes he's already committed and what what prosecution things he should already be prosecuted for. And treason. that's in treason. Treason. Yeah, Always, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and so, it, it you know, it's like a boy who cried wolf kind of a okay. kind of a thing. So let's just talk about what actually happened with this first. And uh, Dan, if you could play the, the tape of uh, Trump explaining, I think this was the most damning thing that happened is Trump, Trump talking about his attitude towards funding the post office. And he did this over a, a series of appearances uh, last week. So they want 25 billion for the post office. They want 2.5 with $3.5 billion for universal mailing, 3.5 billion. And they're not going to do a deal that's good for the American people. Therefore, they're not going to get the 3.5 billion. Therefore, they can't do the universal mail-in vote. It's very simple. How are they going to do it if they don't have the money to do it? He's a little confused because there's an additional 3.5 billion dollar thing in in this proposed package that's 
for uh, well for a variety of things, ele- electoral security, but whatever. Essentially, what he's saying, and he's he said this repeatedly, is I don't want to fund the post office because uh, he doesn't want the universal mail-in voting program to happen. And uh, why does that matter? Because, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that we're in a pandemic and, you know, huge numbers of people probably for the first time are going to are going to vote by mail. And there is a massive discrepancy uh, between who is more likely to vote by mail between Republicans and Democrats. I think the last poll I saw showed that as many as 72 percent of Democrats said they were at least somewhat likely to um, to vote by mail, whereas that number for Republicans is like 22%. So you take that in conjunction with Trump's unwillingness to, to send money, additional money, emergency money to the post office, uh, plus the fact that he recently nominated this postmaster general or, or installed this postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, uh, who has undertaken a series of actions, including moving or decommissioning some mailboxes uh, and shutting down up to 20% of the mail sorting equipment within the mail processing centers. Um, and look, the, it's just hard to escape the logic of this. You take a, If you slow down the post office and they've already sent letters to some of the states saying that um, it, it, some of these ballots may not be delivered quickly enough to be counted, you could easily make the argument that uh, undermining the post office is gonna is going to make make it fewer democratic okay. votes counted, which I think really is I think it is is actually a, a pretty serious story. Now there's definitely there's two things about this that that um, because of the way we cover the news that, that are going to be left out. Number one is that this is this these kinds of assaults on the post office have been going on for for decades now, and uh, the the narrative that the post office is running out of money is financially insolvent, that it can't survive in the in the internet age. Um, that's been tossed out by people in both parties uh, going on you know, almost 30 years now. And it, it hasn't really been true. And, and one of the reasons I know this is, be, and you'll like this, is because Bernie Sanders was one of the only uh, politicians to complain about this dating back to the early 2000s. They did a, They actually made a series of moves way back in the Bush years right. that were designed. The the post office was thought to be uh, in terrible financial condition, and then when they actually did an analysis of it, they found that it was uh, doing great. That it was massively overpaying into its re- retirement fund, and if they just ended uh, ended that practice, it would be uh, pretty quickly looking at a. $70 billion surplus. Some people think it might have been as much as $100 billion that they were looking at. So uh, a series of moves were made after that. First, they made the post office employee, post office responsible for paying the pensions of uh, all of its employees who had served in the military. So essentially, they were making the post office subsidize the military, which pretty much wiped out the, the, the overpayment uh, right away. And then they did this crazy thing in 2006 where they made the post office fully fund 75 years of uh, of benefit payments uh, for its employees. And, and no other government agency has had to do more than 30%. So that costed about $5.5 billion a year, 
which really put the the post office in in a, in a bind. Then they uh, additionally they passed measures that prevented the the post office from engaging in non postal activities. So if you go to like a Staples, right, and you want to deliver a package, it's usually like in a corner where there's a bunch of copy machines and there might be a notary that, that you can go to uh, and they'll wrap packages for you. They'll do all this other stuff. The post office is actively prohibited from engaging in any of those activities because all these lobbyists from all these private uh, delivery services didn't want the post office to compete. Additionally, all the sort of Wall Street-backed politicians in both parties, again, didn't want the post office engaging in banking services, which would have cured all kinds of problems and really been a big thing they could have done after 2008 because people were kind of without banking and it would have solved the access issue for a lot of people in poor communities, et cetera, et cetera. And it would have helped the post office survive financially, prevented that. They started removing mailboxes. Uh, they they wanted to shut down as many as 15,000 uh, post office uh, post offices in 2012. Uh, you can look back and see New York Times editorials about that uh, in favor of, of all this. So there is background here that's that this is just part of a, a longstanding issue. This is worse, obviously, because Trump is is openly saying that he wants to, you know, cut off this money, the the emergency money that the post office shouldn't need anyway, <laughs> right? Be, but for all these other issues that have gone on, uh, but we're gonna we're we're not gonna hear any of that background from because all these people who are suddenly professing to love the post office are gonna leave that out. Uh, then the other thing that happened is that immediately this story is, has has turned has grown out of control, and we've gone into this all these crazy conspiratorial directions that you know that are are nuts. Like uh, Dan, if we can see the Jamie Lee Curtis tweet. Before we move on to that, though, it's I think important to to just emphasize the fact that this was not when, like George Bush signed this into into being right. This was under Bush that they made them pay for years of, of yeah. sanctions ahead of time. But it was it did get bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. So it's not like so this was a terrible thing that was already trying to kind of privatize um, the mail system. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily done at when it was done. It wasn't about disenfranchisement. Um, this is kind of a new uh, a new twist on it. It's like an additional benefit that we know of. So that's oh, the other no, thing. Oh, okay. So, so that's, they may have, uh, that's another angle. Oh, See, that's that, that's what drives me nuts about this is that I would really like to know the answer to the question because I never thought about this before. Right. Like, actually, uh, the presidents do have a significant amount of power to affect election results because they can just get the postmaster general to move a bunch of mailboxes from oh, one place right. to another. And yeah. ha has that ever been done before? Like, do we know? We know that there were there were lots and lots of mailboxes that were removed, both both in the Bush years and the Obama years. Um, you know, I'd like to know whether they were moved from one place to another, whether they were moved entirely. Like, it would be interesting to know. Yeah. But we're just not going to find out. So we should look into that. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe I should. Uh, but but, but that, this is worse. I mean, it's a secondary thing, right? Assuming yeah. that, I mean, what it was was a terrible kind of privatizing, deregulating attempt um, 
to in a really sinister way, as if they cared at all about the pensions for workers. The whole point is that they couldn't care less about it. So it's like really gross. Well, it's, it's worse that. than that. Like they <laughs> they actually didn't want because the, the, the obvious solution to the post office's problems was to just let it pay less uh, in in pension payments because it was overpaying, but they didn't want to do that because they didn't want an adverse impact on the federal budget. In other words, they wanted the they wanted the the, the post office to overpay so that they could use that to cover other holes in the budget. So they've been using the 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 the, the, Pente- the post office as a piggy bank. They've been abusing this institution. There's all kinds of stories about corruption involving appointees and contractors who've been ripping it off. I mean, this is a really, it's a great organization that has a great history in this country, and it's been totally abused by by people in both parties. It's just very frustrating knowing that and, and listening to the Bernie people over the years bar- complain about this. To, to that suddenly now everybody is pretending to be the friend of the post oh, office. Oh, but, but Matt, you may not know this. According to Marcos Melitzas and Jason Johnson. Jason, oh, God. Um, uh, Johnson famous for, for referring to um, the island of misfit black girls um, uh, in reference to uh, Brianna Joy Gray, which actually did get him removed from MSNBC, at least for at, for some time. Um, yeah, according to them, uh, Bernie Sanders is actually responsible for this crisis. Did you see that? Yeah, no, the, they, they, they're in, in error about that as well. Yeah. Um, look, they, it is true that during the, um, during the Obama years, the, that Bernie's office tried to put, put a block on a couple of, of appointees to the, uh, postal board of governors, but they were both Republicans. And I think what, what both, Johnson and Melitzas don't understand is that when Donald Trump became president, he had the right to basically re- install all of his own people anyway. Right. Had nothing like to do wh- with whatever, what it, yeah, whatever happened in 2012 is totally irrelevant to what's going on now. Sa- Sanders, uh, he did block a couple of Republican appointees, but he, you know, he he is, in fact, he was desperately trying to get people to pay attention to the fact that there right. were openings, like the. The, the Senate wouldn't even schedule time to hear this issue or to, or to get any of the uh, any new appointees through. That's why there were vacancies on the Postal Board right. of Governors for a long period of time. Um, and, and these were it, bad guys. That's the whole point. That's why he blocked them, because they were going to go vote for privatizing. And that's why you have the postal workers supporting Sanders' opposition to them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the union was opposed to these two guys. and yeah. and. And so that you know he 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 blocked them, and also you know throughout the Obama years, Barack Obama like never mentioned the post office. Right. Uh, it, it just never came up uh, until he spoke about it. I think it at John Lewis's funeral, but with regards to this scandal, and that's kind of the metaphor for this whole thing is that you know the post office is a great institution that has been kind of ritualistically shat upon and, and is now suddenly everybody is pretending they're its best friend but look this is this is a serious thing let's not get it wrong but the the the, the thing that drives me crazy is that the I, I think it is a serious story and it's going to be ignored because it's already gone to these excessive places uh and you know dan if we could see that that tweet there's a couple of things that the stuff like this is already going on all over the internet 
Yeah, you, you wanted that Jamie Lee Curtis one first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's Jamie Lee Curtis. I swear in broad daylight, the driver of the of the red truck had a red cap on with white letters. Conspiracy? Outright attempted at stealing the election by denying the access of the USPS? Let's not let it happen. I mean... So wait, can you explain looking, what this image is, though? It's, it's, a, it's a tow truck with a postal uh, truck on it. And, you know, she's making a conclusion. It's just a postal truck being towed somewhere. Like, we don't know what that means. Then there was another one, um, you know, from Wisconsin. Dan, if we could see that one as well. And the point is that it's a red hat, right? And a red Yeah, it must, must be a MAGA person. Yeah, like, right. So what, like, do they think that there are, like, MAGA people running around stealing postal trucks? I mean, uh, and then there was, there was uh, this one, if we could see this, Dan. So this, uh, there was a, there's a photo taken in Wisconsin, and again, it's this is happening right before our eyes. They're sabotaging USPS to sabotage vote by mail, and it's a it's a photo of all these, you know, it, it, it looks like mailboxes, they look like stacks of bodies behind a fence, right? They're all stacked in this yard, and then it, it turns out that th- this is just this is a company that does that refurbishes mailboxes, and this is just what it's a routine scene and this ended up having to be debunked in fact-checking sites. So like this kind of stuff is going on already. Like people are there, there is a real element to the story, but there people are freaking out about things like um, mailboxes that are being moved or not moved. And they don't know whether that's routine or not routine or, or what. And because of that, I think people are, 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 are likely to tune out. Uh, ironically, I think they're likely to tune out to the seriousness of the story right. uh, because of stuff like this. Maybe I don't know. No, I do. Well, I think it is the again. It's the boy who cried wolf, and I think it's really terrible because this is this should be a scandal. And again, Ariana Picari, who who resigned from MSNBC, mentioned how this story received less coverage. Um, than it should have, given its seriousness. And uh, I tweeted that MSNBC should cover this as if it were, uh, as if it involved uh, Putin, uh, <laughs> which I think is a good rule of thumb. But yeah, and the Dems were a little bit late on on talking about this. Now they are talking about it a lot, as they should, because it really is terrible for many reasons. Right, but the the way they talk about it is so simplistic. Like I, you know, as I don't know a lot about the post office. Like you know, I. It, what is the federal government's obligation to fund the post office? Like, I don't even know the answer to that question, right? So it does, what exactly is happening when Donald Trump says he's opposed to funding the post office? Does he, is he required to fund the post office? I don't think, I actually don't think so. Um, but that, that, that doesn't mean that the intent is good, but it might mean a slight legal difference. And it's just, we're, we're not going to get that kind of analysis of what the constitutional obligations, what the legal obligations are, um, what proper and improper, what the history of it is like, we just need to know all that stuff, you know, and I, and I think that this is to for me, this is similar to the kids in cages story, which was which was also I thought a, a pretty serious story that that got lost in all this kind of overblown rhetoric pretty early. And you know, when it was finally when they backed down and reversed, which is also what happened here, by the way, they stopped shutting down the machines and they stopped moving the mailboxes. Um, the story just kept going. And I don't know, I'm I, I frustrated by this kind of coverage. Me too. What should be done though? Like, I, I just think they should just go back to doing this the way, because this, this is a technique that's borrowed, I think, straight from 
Fox News. You know, Fox did this with Obama. Like every time Obama did anything, they, you know, made it into a 10 alarm emergency and they were, you know, this an assault on our democracy, then you know, it's fascism, blah, blah, blah. And it became impossible, I think, after a while for conservative audiences to really know what what was actually going on, you know, and they and, and we saw what happened with the conservative media landscape during those years. It kind of split like the, the sort of National Review Republicans went off to one side and the Alex Jones types went off to the other. Right. And and that kind of, you know, ended up being symbolized in what happened in 2016 with the electorate. I think that's kind of going on with Democrats now, like. You have to have some balance, otherwise you, you wear out your audience. Cred. You know? And your cred, And, and right? your cred, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you wear your audience, and then also you, I mean, right, on both sides, right? You wear out your audience that's already hates Trump, and then you also probably, look, there's some people who would never be converted to, to not liking Trump, but I do think that some people see the hysteria around certain things, and they it, it benefits Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely know people who, as soon as they see phrases like "assault on our democracy," like right. they just tune out at this yeah. point because they just know it's too much of a it's too much of a mental commitment to to start following these news cycles because everybody knows where they're going to go at this point, and you don't right. know yeah. you don't know whether which which of these fifteen things is actually the right. democracy imperiling moment, you know? Right, and so. when the when the walls are going to close in. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, this, especially with the pandemic, this could end up being a incredibly serious story. And, and, and some of the comments that Trump has made in conjunction with also some of the, the uh, incidents we've had with uh, contested elections uh, right. during the COVID period, um, this could end up being really, really messy in early November. Uh, I think think it's pretty easy to see some very serious negative possibilities with people not accepting results, with the vote counts being contested, with people claiming fraud back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. And polls are tightening, by the way, between Trump and uh, Biden. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about this when we talk about the DNC. But yeah, I think there's things to worry about there, too. So, yeah. Uh, what do we have for uh, Isn't That Terrible? So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a story. Look, I really hate when this happens. Um, there is apparently there's a Facebook group um, that is called a Facebook group that is called Loaded Guns Pointed at Venus. Venus. Yeah. Venus is in. I honestly legit don't know if it's it has a bracket around the B. I don't think it's like, because penis is, a, you can say that word. So I think they actually made it. It's not like the media sanitizing it. Huh. And so, yeah, it's a Facebook group called Loaded Guns Pointed at Penis. And it was created to irritate uh, responsible gun owners. And so on this Facebook uh, group, a lot of people just show themselves with their fingers on the trigger of guns and they have the guns pointed at their penises. And a guy accidentally blew off his balls. So, yeah. So a guy um, accidentally, uh, yes, he shot himself uh, in the scrotum. 
And there's actually a photo of him. <laughs> I'm sorry, the, the cat picture is the funniest thing I've ever seen, maybe in my life. The what picture? The cat. So there's some some good shots. There's a um, loaded gun pointed at Venus. Uh, you see a good shot of a guy with the gun uh, pointed at, like literally touching his crotch. Um, and there's a cat looking up at him. Actually, that that photo is amazing because the cat looks really concerned. I want, can we can we book that cat? Yeah, seriously, that is a smart cat. <laughs> I want to interview that cat. Look at that cat. Look at his face, right? He's like that... definitely like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like you got, you're gonna shoot your dick off. Yeah, you're gonna shoot your <laughs> dick off. Don't, yeah. Don't do. I'm a cat, and I know that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Okay. It's it's really ridiculous. So this guy um, from San Diego apparently uh, posted a video of himself with his 45 caliber 1911 pistol, and he's pressing the muzzle against his genitals. And this is video that's posted. It's since been removed, but this is what it showed. And after a few seconds, the gun discharges. So, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he writes, hey, and then he writes uh, in a series of posts, hey, boys, I might have fucked up. <laughs> and boys is spelled B-O-I-S, by the way. Right? Okay. How did he have time to post? Well, he really underestimated the damage. So he goes, um, hey, boys, I might have fucked up. And then he posted an image um, of his exposed legs with a towel pressed between them. And you can see drops of blood on the floor and a crumpled copy of the U.S. Constitution. So, Dan, can we show that that photo? I just want to make sure uh, we're looking at it. And, uh, yeah, so you see it's blood splattered. Uh, you see some other clothes on the ground. I guess the, you see his pants. Is that a backpack or pants with a belt? It's unclear. But, uh, yeah, he posted a photo of himself, and much to his, I guess, he goes, I'm not kidding. I just shot myself. God's God's caliber went through my scrotum, mattress, box spring, and floor. God's caliber went through my scrotum, mattress, box spring, and floor. And he thought that he just great. And this is not, like, fake, because apparently the San Diego Police Department confirmed that officers were called to the hospital 8:30 a.m. p.m. sorry 8:30 p.m. on Tuesday for a report of a man suffering from a self-inflicted the, the, wound. So an admin for the Facebook group reported that the victim was 100% okay and even went to work the following day. Yes. So I'm I'm going to guess it's just a through and through that he he he, he probably yes, missed exactly. both balls. Yes, exactly. A through and through, but he thought that he had just grazed himself in two areas. But you're right. It was a through and through. It entered and exited. And he's being referred to as King by his man. <laughs> uh, and someone I, I, wrote, in, in the wake of the incident, other members of the Facebook group elevated the San Diego man to the status of an admin. <laughs> okay, so now he's an admin and celebrated him as King. 
And uh, according to uh, the other admin, um, they told Vice, the reason we are calling him King is partially because the poor guy already shot himself. Don't think he needs to be chastised as well. I'm quite sure he's learned his lesson without the entire world calling him an idiot. What do you mean he, he's learned his lesson? He's learned that if he does some he do, he does something like incredibly stupid that he's going to get rewarded by all his friends, yeah, exactly. which is totally a, du a dude thing. Actually, like that's yeah. why Dan and I are laughing because if if you <laughs> because he's been named king. If you do something incredibly self destructive and just barely survive, like yeah, of course your friends are going to love you for that. Like that's right, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, what guy I mean, doesn't understand that? Apparently, it's it's to mock something called trigger discipline. Do you know about this? I don't. So, uh, just reading from the so Vice, I think started uh, re reporting on this, broke the story. Um, to understand why this idiotic thing happened in the first place, and why there are several groups online dedicated to posting pictures of gun owners pointing a loaded weapon at their dicks, besides the Facebook group in question. <laughs> You need to understand the beef raging between online gun people. Trigger discipline is a basic gun safety measure drilled into people when they're learning about firearms. Basic safety says that you always keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot and that you point it away from yourself and other people unless you mean to shoot them. Shit posters love taking pictures of a loaded gun pointed at their groin, finger hovering just above the trigger to irritate responsible gun owners. Now, loaded guns pointed at Venus has made the shooter, as we know, okay, a king. In one meme, and they're making memes of him, in one meme, Barack Obama is giving him a presidential medal of freedom. Uh, <laughs> the group has charged its cover photo to a screenshot of the shooter pointing his loaded 1911 at his dick. Um, we are sick and tired of being demonized as gun owners and looped together with the alt-right just for owning guns. An admin of loaded guns pointed at Venus told Motherboard Vice in a Facebook message. We are sick of Republicans, parentheses, think NRA, and parentheses, telling us what to do with our property. And we are sick of being told that just because we like guns, it means we have to be anti-woman, pro-life, and pro-Trump. Great story. I mean, look, what, what can I what can I tell you? I mean, there's <laughs> I hope there's not, uh, you know, a, a Facebook page uh, loaded guns pointed at bed, uh, you know, oh, or, <laughs> you or know at, at spouse. Yeah, at, yeah, at bouse. Or child. Or, oh, right. Or child or biled. <laughs> or biled. Yeah. <laughs> that one with the cat really is. Belderly. The, the Belderly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the at the at the at the bleep at the uh, bleep bus at the busleep. disabled at the disabled right at the disabled at the elderly at the bun the bun conscious at the bomatost 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 at the bomatost yeah um <laughs> all right so what I'm up next right what do we yeah. have for uh, isn't, isn't that weird, weird? you know uh, again. A boar swimming, basically. This is a it's a it's a boar scares Germans uh, video. Um, Dan, if we could see the, let's go to the videotape here. It's kind of self-explanatory, but there's a twist to it. It's so cute. 
This made the news like around the world, and there was an AP report about it that I found really strange because I have deep suspicions about this. Uh, there's a there's a caption under this video that's attributed to AP. It says a swimming wild boar surprised sunbathers in Germany after taking a tip a dip in the Baltic Sea uh, before uh, charging through. Uh, the, the crowded beach. Footage of the incident in the northern coastal town of Schoenberg on Saturday was obtained by uh, German news agency DNF. The boar is seen swimming towards the beach before running off past tents and tiles as people scatter to clear a path. There are no reports of any injuries. I looked up Schoenberg and I didn't see it as being under on the Baltic coast, oh, but maybe, maybe, maybe it is. Uh, but if there's uh, any Germans among our listeners, um, well, please tell it because no no i mean it's just confusing like i thought i thought maybe is this fake news but it right it's a great video because you don't see where the boar comes from it like yeah it just start swimming from the from the ocean right right yeah do exactly. we know what they're saying any german speakers uh yeah, what, need, what they're saying we need, we need a german some, speaker yeah because they could be saying anything right anyway uh germans and boars who knew? So that was the four food groups uh, for this week, and what a busy week it was. So we have lots to talk about. The DNC happened this week. Uh, how much did you watch? It's Wednesday, so full disclosure, I watched uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday, and by the time you're watching this, I will have watched Wednesday and Thursday. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I, you know, obviously, I was doing the the drinking game on Monday, which turned out to be so painful that um you know for a variety of reasons that i i could i couldn't i couldn't face watching it on tuesday but uh there were a couple of moments that i think we should we should uh, focus on early for folks who had who didn't watch the dnc obviously because of covid it uh they took they had to do something completely different from what it usually is because normally the convention just by dint of its sheer size and quantity of people is like this amazing spectacle wrapped around like the most boring thing you could ever possibly imagine right it's like it's like going to you know ali frazier but like to watch computer a computer spit out ones and zeros all day long it's 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 the it's it's an unbelievable setup wrapped around something very dull they don't have the crowds this time so what do they do? they created something that was that that was really weird like i don't even know how to characterize it it was it's kind of part telethon yeah it's uh, very part, big telethon energy yeah yeah and a lot of telethon energy it had a mr rogers feel for me um huh. because like joe biden kind of played the role of of mr rogers who was you know going off to to you know into the different worlds uh that the dnc was uh, trying to pr present and interviewing, you know, Henrietta, whoever. And, you know, I, I actually think they did a good job of turning it into watchable TV. Barely watchable, yeah. Barely, but the, the content was really, was really bizarre throughout. And we can get into that. But, but uh, the most interesting moment for me was this one. And Dan, if we could see this. America is at a crossroads. Sometimes elections <laughs> represent a real choice. A choice we make okay. as individuals. So it's... Uh, John Kasich is, is saying, telling us that America's at a crossroads and he's standing literally at a crossroads. It's like an aerial shot. It's a great shot. Uh, look, I, Thomas Friedman is, has to be put on an alert because that is going overboard for a metaphor right there, right? Yeah, seriously. I mean, I think, I think frankly, this is, the, this is, every writer should, should, uh, 
should work to do this at least once once in their lives. To, I mean, he's literally standing at a crossroads, but that that was great. I thought that was, uh, you know, it, what, they didn't sell it as funny, which no, I think would right, have would have been better. Uh, but uh, but it was it, it was actually funny. In terms of the themes of of the DNC, they they really were em- emphasizing a couple things. They they use the uh, they they pretty relentlessly use the term peaceful protesting. I think they were trying to counter something maybe that's in the ether about the protests. They talked about reimagining a lot. That was a word that was uh, used quite a bit. And then the, the, the post office was really basically the dominant theme of the entire uh, convention, which really, really makes me wonder, like, what were they planning on stressing if Trump hadn't said all that stuff a couple of weeks ago? You know what I mean? And like, because this gets to... I don't know how you feel about this, but this this to me gets to the question of why um, it's a little worrying that the polls are this close because they're they're doing exactly the same strategy again as 2016, where the whole thing is just about how much Trump sucks, and there isn't a whole lot. The Bernie speech was the only like little island of policy proposal in the whole first day that I could see. Uh, I don't know. What did you think? It was- yeah. I mean, Bernie was the only remotely inspiring person, the only person who brought up the fact that things were bad before Trump, like who acknowledged that at all. Um, I thought that um, Michelle Obama kind of gave gave the game away a little bit. She framed the election as a harm reduction election when she said, um, for those of you who think it can't get worse, it can and it will get worse, which I do think is probably the strongest pro. It's a, it's a low bar and it's a sad thing to say, but that's probably the be- the biggest, the most convincing vote for Biden um, slogan is that motto, is that it will get worse with Trump. Right, yeah. So it's basically, it's basically like the Woody Allen joke about, you know, the, the miserable and the horrible, right? Like, you know, there's... I right. mean, it's, it's just they're 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 basically this is the less this is lesser evilism, but like, you know, pushed to some kind of weird parody extreme. They just didn't have really a whole lot to say that was uh, positive or inspiring about what they planned to do about anything. No, they, yeah, they, they were really really stressing the idea that Joe Biden is just is a fundamentally decent person who and he's not Trump. It's pretty tough to keep up that that as an idea across hours and hours of, of programming uh, when they're not really saying a whole lot else. And they had some other themes. They, they talked about defunding the post office, yeah. which I, I think, again, was, was intended to try to turn around rhetoric about defunding the right, police. Right, they were trying to make that tr- sound scary. Right. It's so stupid, though, because like, I mean, I think that I am for defunding the police as in reallocating a lot of resources. It doesn't mean like for me, I don't I don't think this police force is going to be like liquidated immediately. I think it means like giving more money to education, to social workers, to all these things that should be done that will help prevent crime and lower recidivism, whatever. But it's like so dumb because no one thinks it's scary. Like. People are scared by the idea of um, defunding the police. The people who are scared by that think of that as like, oh, we're going to live in a chaotic world. I don't think people are like, oh, my God, if we're defunding um, the post office, we're going to live in a dangerous world. Maybe chaotic. 
But well, I mean, I, 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 can, I can see why people would be nervous about the defunding thing because they're what they're seeing right now, and you know, in a lot of cities, is rising crime rates. So there's definitely confusion over what defunding the police means. Right, but there, but those people aren't going to associate. My point, I guess, is that people who are afraid of that. I don't think they're going to be like, but at the same time, the the Democrats want to defund the police, but at the same time, the Republicans are trying to defund the post office, which makes right. me equally scared. That's my point. Yeah, no, I, okay, I get it. Right. So if you're if you're likely to be freaked out by de- defunding the the police, you're not likely to be terrified of defunding the post office. Yeah, it's just another example, I think, of the Dems being totally tone deaf and using like trying to 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 their 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 whole thing is just framing and messaging. They have nothing good to offer, basically. Right. Yeah. And they and they they very carefully didn't roll that out until the DNC. It was like I didn't hear that whispered anywhere that defund the post office until suddenly it was like this explosion. And uh, and then the other thing was this relentless uh, it wasn't relentless, but it was a pretty concerted effort to put Republicans on right. uh, who were like, I, I, w- I was a lifelong Republican and now, you know, I'm OK, great. I, I, I get that. But this is this has also been a tactic that the party has used um, in the past and, and seen it blow up on them, uh, you know, in 2004. One of the things they really stressed with John Kerry was his ability to cross the aisle. Right. And they they had a video of him embracing John McCain and everything. And it was it, it was sort of emblematic of their fear of seeming like weak on defense. And, uh, you know, in, in this so case, bad. I think I, I think they're trying to, you know, with the defund, the, the post office and everything they're they're trying to present Biden as um being firmly like uh set apart from uh like the woke left mm-hmm. and i actually get that but they to to, to sell themselves as as republican adjacent i don't think that's terribly smart either uh i don't know it, the whole thing seemed kind of incoherent to me i mean they but- talked about structural racism actually i, I wanted to read a, a tweet from marianne williamson which i thought was good um, she said, I guess Mark Ruffalo tweeted watching the Dem. Con- and I love Mark Ruffalo, but, you know, it's because I love him so much that I have to read this. Uh, watching the Dem convention. It's so good to see so many diverse people coming together, addressing racism and the promise of America. There's a sweetness and kindliness about this production. And Marianne Williamson writes, no, I'm sorry, but they did not address racism. They showed a lot of beautiful pictures of POC and made references to BLM, but there was not one mention of an actual policy to help end systemic racism. It's like binge watching a Marriott commercial, (laughs) which is true. It's very, very, very true. And uh, I thought the structural racism and systemic racism discourse was, um, it was just, I mean... I think those things are real and they need to be combated. Um, I don't know what the Dems are doing to combat it, except for legitimately when Sanders spoke, I thought he was being very sincere when he talks about the rising authoritarianism of Donald Trump. And I think that Sanders really connects the rhetoric with, um, you know, the, the Nazism that he that his family fled. Like, I do think that he sees. Uh, Trump as as uh, having authoritarian tendencies and and whipping up bigotry and all that stuff and I think that's a that's true. Um, I think we have to talk about policy also and for someone like Sanders obviously he does so he's he's all good. 
um, in that regard. But um, I mean, I, the thing that really killed me was the talk of how COVID disproportionately affects people of color. Because if you think that, and you know that, and that's true, but you don't support Medicare for all, you're actually, I would say, a very bad person. Like that person, I'm sorry, that's the irredeemable basket of deplorables. That's the deplorable. Uh You know what's up, you understand that, and yet you're not going to embrace, so you're basically like okay with that if you don't embrace Medicare for all. I'd rather you just not care about racism and not care about Medicare for all than you than you address racism and you lament how disproportionately affected people of color are by our healthcare crisis. Um, right. And then say, and you know what? Um, what I'm going to do about that is um, I'm going to change my Instagram um, image. Uh, I'm going to get really excited about having Black Lives Matter written on the street. Um, I'm going to celebrate taking down a statue, and that is my, um, that is how I see dismantling racism. Like, no, that's not actually how you do it. And uh, you're apparently okay with it being disproportionate. Yeah, look, I obviously agree with you. I think the relentless emphasis on um, sort of images of and of combating racism the marriott commercial i'm I'm older so to me it's a benetton commercial but uh but the uh the insincerity of it and the was was so craven it was so obvious Mm -hmm. uh, in in a lot of places that i I think it was really off-putting no, and the disproportionate argument, we should have Adolf Reed back on this because the whole disproportionality issue is really gross because I don't want to fight for a world in which um, more uninsured people are white and more people who die because they can't afford health insurance are white. Um, that's not the future I believe in fighting for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an important point to make because I think it reaches people who are um, understandably oppose racism. I think it's really important for people to see how those things, you know, sorry, trigger warning for you, Matt, but how they intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that's really, I think it's an important gateway drug or gateway point. Um, or I don't even care if you don't ha- shift your how you view the world. For me, it's kind of like the point is we shouldn't have people suffering and dying because they can't afford it. But if uh, if people need to get on board with that because they see it as a as just a racial racial justice issue, that's fine. But um, it really is like that is what the, the aspirations of the Democratic Party are: less overrepresented people of color among the killed, right, and more performative politics on on that score more board yeah more yes more performative stuff more kneeling more kente cloths more taking down um statues yeah i mean look they one of the reasons they barely made it through the drinking game is because systemic and systematic were were one of the rules right and for a party that uh basically threw everything it had uh in both 2016 and in 2019 and 20 at Bernie Sanders to prevent the systematic change candidate from from uh, gaining traction. They, you know, for this party, it's just a word, right? Yeah. Like they, and and when they, when they talk about systematic racism, um, well, what are we really talking about there, right? Like, because if you want to talk about police brutality, 
what's what's your policy changed? Well, you know, if you want to talk about systematic racism, one of the biggest areas you see it in is um, uh, the war on drugs, for instance. The war on drugs, uh, like Medicare, uh, uh, me- or Medicare, yeah, the post office thing, like another. The, the oh yeah because the federal because of employee who it employs right well not only that but like the the one of the major issues of the financial crisis was and you know going forward is this sort of lack of access to right. to quality banking you know uh in poor neighborhoods and you know they've never been in favor of anything along those lines it just it just feels empty to me it feel it feels like they're to, to use a term that I can't stand, it, it feels like a lot of virtue signaling. And especially if you take that in conjunction with the other piece of the DNC, which is just this litany of people standing up to talk about how horrible Donald Trump is, it sends a message to audiences that, okay, we basically don't stand for a whole lot. We're focusing on something that we, we weren't even couldn't even have really been thinking about even three weeks ago, which, you know, is tells you that we're just prisoners of the moment. We're just doing whatever we can do to get through the night. You know, they don't have any big principles that they're selling. And and I've seen a lot of people start to comment on this about this election, which is that, you know, even in 2016, there were some big ideas in there, even if they were negative ideas, you know, whether it was the wall or Hillary versus Bernie or whatever it was, this general election season is is turning into this thing where it's just a bunch of reaction to stuff that goes on on the internet and there's no there's no big policy idea. Anyway, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all plays. And, and plus, if the DNC was this bad, I think we can pretty much count on the, the, the Republican convention being equally ridiculous. But all right, so we're going to talk to uh, former Congresswoman Katie Hill, who uh, was, um, I think, went through one of the all time unpleasant media experiences probably in the history of American politics. She was uh, in the middle of a very, very complicated story. And we're going to let her use her own words to characterize what that was. Was it a scandal? Was it something else? Um, but there were there were really multiple parts to what happened. There was this revenge porn aspect. She had a, an abusive husband who was threatening to release some things about her if uh, he left, if she left him. And that's what he did. Uh, then there were allegations that she had had a, a, an affair with her legislative director, her male legislative director, uh, and those turned out to be apparently not true. Uh, then there was a true story about a relationship she apparently had with with a campaign staffer, and it was because of that, technically, along with some other things, we think that that she actually ended up resigning. Uh, but she has she, she has a book that that's out now called uh, "She Will Rise" that goes through a lot of these issues and. And, you know, we're going to ask her about all these things and about what she thinks about uh, the campaign, the DNC and some other issues. Yeah. And she was also openly um, bisexual. And the, the woman with whom she did have the relationship um, was a woman, which I think plays into it also. Right. It should, it should be really interesting. Uh, she, her, her, her book's out now. And um, let's uh, let's talk with Kitty Hill. Thank you so much for joining us. Um I guess the first question is, when did you think of writing the book? And did you have an aha moment? What, what was the process like? 
you know, immediately when you, I mean, I'm going to just be totally honest. When you first resigned um, or when I first resigned, I was suddenly hit with, oh, wait, I'm not getting a paycheck anymore. And it's not like there's any savings whatsoever from, you know, a congressional salary and having a house in Southern California and an apartment in D.C., Um, so I was like, I got to figure something out fast. And I had a whole bunch of people saying, well, you got to write a book. And I'm like, okay, but I don't, what am I going to say? And then there was an aha moment of, I think that, you know, the, the most important thing isn't my own story, but it's how my story is reflective of what so many other women go through and, and how it needs to be a call to arms, um, to say that we have to do something drastic in order to make the changes that are necessary. And, uh, in my view, that's all about electing women and, and getting to parity. And um, until we do that, things are not going to fundamentally change. And there were a lot of things that that really developed throughout the you know, the course of writing it, um, especially my grandma's story, which I talk about a lot in there. That was one that, you know, I didn't necessarily intend for it to be as big of a part as it ended up playing. But uh, I felt like as, you know, the more I talked to her, the more important it felt to me to, to kind of tie the two narratives together. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I had, I also had a, you know, a lot of time that was kind of lost because of what happened with my brother. You know, he passed away uh, in mid January my mom had brain surgery. So this is the time that I'm supposed to be writing the book. Um, and because I, I had always wanted it to come out in time for the hundredth anniversary of uh, the 19th amendment. And so there was just a very short timeline for us to be able to finish everything. And, um, and they had to push my deadline till the absolute last second for the publication date to work out because, uh, you know, I, I obviously couldn't work on it for, you know, a while. So I, I really hunkered down and wrote the thing in like three weeks. It was quite an experience. <laughs> and did you enjoy writing before? Yeah, I was actually an English major, yeah. funny enough. So I, and, and my jobs, um, early on in, in the nonprofit sector were writing related. And um, it's definitely something that I've, I've always written some to just kind of process things. And I always, I kept a notebook to write about, even while I was in Congress, just to kind of write about, you know, experiences. And so, yes, the na- the writing was fairly natural for me. And, and that's why I didn't, I didn't need a ghostwriter. I did need help researching because there was a lot of just, you know, heavy research in there and, and, uh, help in terms of kind of, you know, editing and putting it all together in a way that made the most sense. But, but yeah, it's definitely my writing. So yeah, it didn't have that boring feel that politicians books often have. So I'm glad you had a nice (laughs) natural feel to it. So that's that's great. Could could you talk a little bit about your decision to resign? Because the book, in the book, you stress a lot about, and, and, and it, it's very convincing, you know, you're obviously, there's a lot of um, resentment towards your ex-husband, towards the way the press behaved, towards Red State, towards the Daily Mail. Uh, but ultimately, you did decide that there was reason enough that you actually had to resign. Can you, we, we had Alex Morrison on our on the show last week who talked about how he kind of came up against the edge of deciding whether or not to quit and ultimately decided not to. Yeah. Was was there a moment like that for you and what, what pushed you over the edge? Yeah, there there was, and, and for you know two weeks I was fighting it and saying no, I'm going to stick this out. Um, but the the barrage of the images and the articles and the leaked text messages and the fact that they said that you know that, that there was just going to be more and more coming, I felt like it was never going to stop if I didn't take myself out of the picture. I thought that it was going to continue to have this terrible impact that it was having on my staff. You know, my staff is like 
they're completely in the dark. They don't know what my response is going to be. They don't know because I didn't even know what my response was going to be. They didn't know um, what was true, what wasn't true. And once, you know, once somebody, once there's something that's claimed that you admit to, right. The part that I admitted to in terms of the consensual relationship, then, then I think it, it really made people question everything else. And even though those things weren't true. So I felt like I was up against that as well. And, um, my family was being harassed. My, you know, my mom was being followed in these trucks and my, you know, my sister's business was getting attacked and my staff was getting stuff sent to the, the local office. These, they had white powder sent to them. And my, my friends and colleagues in Congress were, were getting, you know, bombarded by these questions about me too. Are you going to support her? Or do you think, you know, blah, 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 blah. And as we were going into impeachment, especially since I was the, you know, the leader of the freshman class, I felt like I was going to be used as this distraction and also as this liability for Democrats and especially for, for freshman frontliners. And um, the moment that changed me or th that made me finally decide to do it is that I was in personal agony. I mean, I was miserable. I was, I was you know, the, the most depressed that I think I've ever been um, and just shamed and horrified and guilty about everything. Um, and my mom, you know, I had, I think I talk about this in the book, but I just yeah. had this conversation with my mom about it all. And she's like, you just, you don't have to keep putting yourself through this and, um, it'll, it'll be okay. Um, and that, that felt like it gave me the, I don't know, the go ahead to resign, but I, you know, I still have, I still wonder sometimes if I should have stuck it out. And the, the biggest time that I questioned that decision was when the Republican, right defeated the Democrat in the special election to replace me. Um, because I honestly wasn't expecting that. I thought that we had won by so much, we'd won by nine points, that uh, that the district had had really changed. And, um, you know, lots of lessons learned from that. And I'm hopeful, really hopeful, that we flip it in November. But, you know, after that, it was like, what, was this, you know, another huge mistake that I stepped down? Should I have stuck it out? And I don't know that there's a right answer, right? You know, I don't think there there ever could be because I still, I still felt the weight of possible hypocrisy of, um, you know, the, what it was putting people through. And, and so I don't, I think that would have certainly continued if I'd stayed in, you know, but then there's also the, I know that I was doing good work there and I know right. that I was, you know, contributing. And if I had been, if we had been closer to, uh, if we didn't have the majority by as much as we did, then it would have been a total different calculation. And also I've thought about it more. And I think that even if I'd been in office longer, or if I'd been a, a more experienced candidate or somebody who'd even been in other offices before, it might've been different for me. It might've been, you know, a, a, yeah, something different to have gone through. But um, the, you know, the pictures really just make a huge, huge difference. The fact that you're kind of, I didn't want to go outside. I didn't want to, you know, um, I didn't feel like I could face the world with that. So yeah, it was, it was a very difficult decision. It sounds, it sounds like though, that if, uh, if some time passes, some parts of those, of that calculation are going to dissipate. You're no longer going to be potentially a distraction to an impeachment hearing. Uh, the, the heat of a media hurricane is going to, is going to recede a little bit. It's, it sounds like that leaves the door open somewhat for a return to politics perhaps down the line when the circumstances have changed some? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's impossible. Um, I think that I have 
I, I've found a, a path for now in terms of the work that I want to do. Um, you mentioned the the funds that I'd raised for my reelection. Many politicians, you know, either who resign or who um, who lose in, in a reelection campaign, they keep that campaign money uh, in an account that just sits there, so that if they do run for federal office again, they can just use it. Um, and I had about a million dollars, which is a lot for you know a competitive house race, you know, for any house race. But I. Uh, I thought that, you know, I, I had an obligation to all the people who had donated to me to convert that into something that was meaningful. So I converted it into this political action committee called Her Time. And the work that I've been doing on that, you know, really, uh, it dovetails so much in the book. And you know, th- I was able to use the book to kind of even uh, outline the mission of the work with Her Time. And so we're supporting these candidates, not just in presidential elections, but to vote for women in every single election. And, uh, and then we're going to be championing and advocating for these legislative issues that are outlined in the book, too. So um, that's a lot of work. It's, and it's something that I'm really excited about. And it's something that I think we can make a difference in because there's not an organization. There, there are organizations with, with um, complementary missions, like Emily's List. But we are, we are targeting a very specific set of, um, you know, of goals and of the kinds of people that we're supporting. So, you know, I want to, I want to, fle- I want to make that successful. I want to set that up to be, uh, to have a big impact before I move on to anything else. And, um, there are so many amazingly talented women, um, women of color, women who haven't had the opportunity for their voices to be elevated yet that I don't feel like I need to insert myself again, uh, anytime soon. If there's a gap, if there's something that I feel like maybe down the road makes sense. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's it's not on the priority list right now. How how do you describe what happened? Because there's so much, I, I feel like we often don't have the language appropriate to describe things. So lots of things get called a scandal and sometimes things that are not scandalous, like um, actual, and this wasn't your, the case for you, but everything from like sexual assault to a totally consensual um, extramarital affair, they all get lumped into this group of, of sex scandal or sexual yeah. scandal. Um, so how, and you and there were a lot of different things happening, right? There were the photos, um, there was the relationship that you were accused of having, which you didn't, there was a relationship that you did have. How, how do you describe it? Um, and I actually asked you because I was, we were recording the intro and I was like, I wanna give her the chance to, to kind of, use her own words, which you do in the book, but I wanted to give you the chance to use your own words, like, you know, verbally. Um, So just so viewers and listeners know. Sure. Um, I have come to just kind of, for lack of a better phrase, call it a scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, and, and basically call it a sex scandal because I don't know, I don't know what else you could refer to it as, especially because mine involves many different aspects. Right. Um, I think that, you know, of course I don't, I don't love it, but, um, but I also, I also, I'm pretty sure that if, if it were somebody else, I would even, I would still refer to it as a scandal, even if it weren't something that I thought, you know, that the person was at fault for, it's still, it's still a scandal right, yeah. nonetheless, right? Like Monica Lewinsky was still involved in a scandal, even though, you right. know, it wasn't necessarily her fault. So, so I think that that's, that is the term that I've come to use at first, you know, I was calling it, um, the, like the incident or the, you know, the situation or, um, things like that. But, but after a little bit of time, I was just like, yeah, it's a scandal. And I'm, I'm on the very short list of 
women who have been involved of po women politicians who have been involved or taken down by a sex by a sex scandal. Um, there are plenty of women who have been on the other side um, in a political sex scandal, but not the the politicians themselves. So. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking once you said that. Uh, yeah. There was a woman from, she's a Republican, who yeah. is the majority leader of the Minnesota State uh, Senate. And and she's pretty much the only other one that pops up um, if you're looking for it. And I think, interestingly, since I, since I resigned, I heard about a woman who was a mayor of a, a city in the South who had uh, who had a revenge porn or cyber exploit exploitation happened to her too, and um, and she she did not resign, and um, and I was really I was happy for that because I think that maybe my you know what happened with me might have made it may, might have drawn a little Set bit of a line in the sand and yeah. and said that this is not this is not something that the women should be at fault for right and right. if you if you want to basically you should decide whether I should resign, not based on those photos, but based on, you know, other, other aspects, other aspects of the situation. So when you say that, do you mean, um, uh, the relationship that you had with your female staffer? Is that, is yeah. that the thing that made you, I get that the, the photos made you feel terrible, but, but for the, that relationship, would you have stayed? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I honestly don't know. Um, but I, I do know that, you know, I, I did feel a lot of guilt around that. Um, I felt, especially because I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be painted as this hypocrite. And, um, even though at the time and, and ongoing, I didn't feel like there was this power differential, especially when it started. And I didn't, I certainly didn't feel like I was in the same category as, you know, Harvey Weinstein or, yeah, or any of the other ones, but, but you still, I still had to, I had, I had to kind of come to terms with, but I get why. And I get, when I get that the accountability that we, we have come to expect from, from people in these kinds of situations, whether they're men or women, like I, I'm kind of setting the tone, um, in a lot of ways. I, I was kind of the first, the first woman in a, in a scandal like this too, in the post me too era, right? Like the relationship that I was in had started before any of the Harvey Weinstein stuff. It had started before the, um, you know, the me too, hashtag it even become big. Right. Right. Um, so it was, I think it was, I'm, I was right in that shifting moment and it's still happening where we haven't fully defined what we intend for that to mean and, and who it should apply to and how it should be applied. Um, but I, especially because of the fact that I was in that, you know, I would, even though I was a victim, I was, I was afraid of what I was, if I, if I didn't acknowledge that and if I didn't step down, was that suggesting that it was okay, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe I was reading into this too much, but in the book, you use the present tense when you talk about how I know that this that it was inappropriate to have that relationship. Maybe it suggested that you didn't know at the time, um, maybe, yeah. or that you came to a realization. Um, what changed your mind about that? I mean, did did you have did you have some new thinking about what the dynamics were of that relationship as this was breaking, or what happened? Definitely. Um, you know, my, I, and, and just over the course of time in general. Right. But like when the, when, when it had started and I have, you know, I, I was in a, I was in a management position of an executive level position at a large organization for a, a long time before I ran for anything in, in politics. And, 
I was, um, you know, it never would have even occurred to me to have uh, any kind of a relationship with someone I worked with, right? That was totally off the table. But in the campaign, and I think this is a combination of the, the turbulent relationship that I was having with my husband, the amount of time and proximity you spend with people, the fact that it, it was such a small and grassroots team, like there were literally three of us that were working on it at the time. And, um, and so I, it didn't, I didn't feel like I was, at that point, I didn't feel like I was in a position of power, right? I didn't, even though I should have recognized that I was, I did not, I didn't at the time, it didn't feel like that. And so I, um, I, th- I think that that's, the, that's a big part of the realization, right? Is, is that I, I didn't set those boundaries with my staff. I didn't, I didn't see myself in the way that I should have. And some of that didn't come until later until I really was in this more powerful position of being a member of Congress. And, um, and even then, you know, there was, there was a long time that I felt like, you know, with, especially with my staff that had worked with me during the campaign and that had, had been, basically colleagues, the way that I saw it was, I didn't feel, and frankly, they didn't, in a a good way, like they didn't, they didn't have any fear of talking to me like I was a, a, a peer, right? I felt like I got good feedback because of the fact that they weren't afraid of me as, as a, as a member of Congress. So I think that, you know, it's a, it's a whole bunch of kind of factors coming together that made for like a perfect storm. Um, and it was, it certainly was not something that I, I recognized at the time, you know, I recognized other potential problems with it, but not, but not that I was like exerting my power over somebody. It's funny because it's like one of the, it's almost a sign of progress, right. In terms of women and LGBTQ issues that, uh, cause I think with an older man, like with a man, ma- a male, um, candidate, it's, it's kind of a clearer, it's a starker yeah. contrast, you know, than it yeah. is, I think with two women probably. Yeah, two women um, and both of whom, I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't even 30 when the campaign started. And um, and so, yeah, I think it was, it's the age difference. It's the, it, yeah, it's the fact that you're, I think as a woman and as someone who has been on the receiving end of uh, assault by men, like I'm not conditioned to think of myself in, in that, on that side of things, right? Are we in like a new media environment where, the with the internet can now make life basically unbearable for somebody in in the, in the right circumstances and uh that can become the de- the determinant in somebody's political future like you know in a, in the blink of an eye is this a new reality for people going into politics like people have to be ready for for that if they're going to yeah. enter into it now what, what do you think your story says to people who are th- maybe thinking about going into politics yeah, I, I've, I've struggled with that a lot too, right? Of how how do I how do I tell people, yeah, this happened to me, but you should still do it anyway. And uh, the way that I've kind of reconciled this is like, well, what happened with me is pretty much the worst case scenario. So prepare yourself for this worst case scenario, and um, and think about how you would handle it if it happened to you. That's part of my problem, right? Is that I hadn't. I think this is this is a simple you know, human denial or, or even a level of naivety that I didn't, that I, that I was, I don't know that I had, I didn't run that scenario out fully. I, maybe I didn't want to, um, but I definitely did not play that out entirely. Like, okay, if this comes out, how am I going to handle it? If this is the, and part of it, like I said, is, is a big denial kind of thing. Like you just don't, you, even though you know it in the back of your head that it's a possibility, you don't, you don't really want to address it as a real possibility because it sounds just so horrifying. 
But so I tell, I, you know, I tell people like, be ready for it, get in front of those kinds of things. And if you, if you, if you have nude pictures out there, which most people do, like, don't be ashamed of it. And if you've got baggage, come out, <laughs> come out with it early because, um, you know, you take away that power if you do it yourself. And uh, that's something that I think I wish I had done. Is, is it different also now? And I mean, it's possible that people have become so inured to these to these kinds of incidents that it's no longer fatal to somebody's career necessarily uh yeah. if something like this happens now right i mean there was, yeah maybe 20 years ago like it's you know a single photo of gary hart uh right. was enough to to end the campaign it would take a lot more than that these days i, I think right i mean yeah uh, yeah and again if it were just if it were just naked photos i don't know if that would have been enough i don't mm -hmm. i don't it for me um, I think it was the, like I said, the culmination of everything um, in the moment in time. But, but I do think that, you know, for, I think people, you know, as we, as we look at a new generation of leaders, we grew up online, right? We, we've, our entire adult lives have been documented by social media and the, the nudes that, you know, have, that are consensually shared are normal, right? That's not, that's not an unusual thing at all. And so I think, I think that we are going to have to be desensitized or, or accepting of these kinds of things. And I also think that, you know, a, a big part of what people are looking for now, truly, I feel this way, in politicians is someone who's real, someone who they identify with, who's been through the same kinds of things that they have. And, um, and it doesn't mean perfection. So I hope that things continue to change and that that is, um, that we find a way of reconciling that because I think, you know, especially for women, there are fewer of us. And so we are held to a higher level of expectation for perfection. Um, and even we hold ourselves to that higher level of expectation, but that at a certain point, we're going to have to, we're going to have to say people who we elect to represent us, we elect for the reasons, uh, you know, their, their leadership qualities or what we think they can do for us, or even that they do um, that they represent us, that they, they actually represent the things that we are and the things that we've gone through. Um, and not, and that that doesn't mean that they have to be this perfect person who's been preparing to be a politician for their entire lives. How do you think the Democratic Party is doing uh, this week with the DNC? Um, and what's your, you know, having, having been out of it a little bit for, for a year now, were you surprised by anything in terms of the way the primary race developed and, and how we got to this point? Uh, Surprise, no. Um, somewhat disappointed, sure. I think, you know, in even like I, I have a lot of respect for the people who've put together the convention and, and how difficult that has been, right? I think that evolving and, and adapting it to this moment with COVID is just an incredibly challenging thing. Uh, but there are some things that I think really show the, the, the split between an older base of Democrats and the younger ones. Um, so I was, I was talking with somebody earlier that, you know, a lot of the speakers that they've got, you've got Kasich and Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton and oh, yeah. Colin Powell and, you know, these, these people who do not have any appeal to younger progressives at all. And in fact, are very off-putting, you know, if you've already, if you already feel like you've, you have a concern about progressives and younger people showing up in November because you've got Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, then to me, it seems like a bad move to not be elevating these, these younger, more progressive voices more. Um, and I almost, I feel like in a way, AOS, you know, Alexandria was set up for the controversy that happened with hers because people didn't understand this, that she was going to be up there to second Bernie and that that was like, I feel like that should have been a, 
um, you know, that that really should have been a, a something that was kind of publicized beforehand, that the role that she was playing, that, that her speaking part, her 60 seconds was in fact to uh, second Bernie Sanders nomination or do you Whatever. think that was genuine? Because I, I felt like there was a little bit of triangulating going on there against against her. In other, in other I, words, I, that's what I mean. Is that I think that, and I don't know who who was responsible for that, but I felt like I felt like it was a bit of a setup to make a controversy that wasn't there. And I don't, you know, again, I don't know whose fault that was. I don't right. know if it was a, if it was a media play or if it was an ac- a genuine accident or if it was something that someone just looked just didn't right. think about and should have. But I I really. I really think that the campaign needs to to make an extra effort to to generate that excitement or at least acknowledge that the party is moving in a different direction. We've seen it with these with the um, you know Mondaire Jones and uh, and the other you know the other Jamal folks that Bowman. have won in these yeah yes. and um, so we we're going to have to acknowledge that and and it's not a great way to um, to do that with what they've done so far in the convention so. Kamala is a great pick. Um, you know, still wasn't the favorite for progressive. She was my, she was, I, I uh, uh, endorsed her for her presidential campaign from the very beginning. So I'm, I'm a big fan, but you've got to recognize like, all right, there are these shortcomings that we've got with a big part of our party. How are we going to coalesce them? And what are you, what are you as the DNC, you as the whoever's in charge of any of these things doing to appeal to them and to, and to say, we see you, we hear you would recognize that things are changing and that we want you to be a part of it. What about this sort of generally Trump centric uh, message of, of the DNC? Like, you know, reading your book, you've one of the things that's appealing about it is that you, you, you basically say of charts of lists of positions that you take on things. It's just very clear here. Are, here are like five things we're going to do paid family leave, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, there was so little of that so far with the DNC yeah. and so much of this emphasis on the, you know, our, our opponent is an existential threat, et cetera, et cetera. It, it makes me wonder whether they're trying to stress or whether they're running from this idea that we stand, you know, we stand for something. Yeah. I think it's, I get why, right? And I think that, you know, what's going to motivate people in November, including progressives who might not otherwise have any desire to to vote for someone like Joe Biden, they're going to do it because of this anti-Trump sentiment, because that, like, we have this this really overwhelming sense that our country is not going to survive another four years of him, or that our democracy is not going to, that the post office isn't going to, that all of these things that we hold dear will not make it if we do not get rid of this guy. So I think that the really the motivating factor, and we've seen this in polling, we've seen this in um, you know other qualitative uh, studies that we've that we've been looking at. That's the motivator this time around. Is it is the anti-Trump sen- sentiment that's going to bring most people to the polls. However, when you're talking to to me at least, when you're talking to the base, that's who you're talking to at the convention, right? You're not trying to you're not really trying to talk to you're not trying to talk to Republicans. Like I don't really I don't know what what else you would be doing but it would be nice to say or to hear okay we all know we have to get rid of trump this is this is something like if you if you're not on board with that sentiment at this point then i don't know how to help you and um and to say like okay but we have a we have a a job that we're gonna have to do when we get elected which is to clean up that mess and i don't want to understate that at all that's going to be hard it is a lot of damage to undo in every single aspect from foreign policy to environmental policy to women's rights to, um, you know, everything that we were seeing around race relations, like just cleaning up and undoing the damage that's been done 
happen over the last four years is probably going to take an entire term of the, you know, of the next presidency. But we should at least say, okay, here's how we're going to do some of that cleanup. And here's some of the things that we're going to prioritize. The House in, you know, the 116th Congress, we passed these, all of these, these huge, um, these, these huge, huge measures that would, um, that would fundamentally impact our political system and, uh, and have laid the benchmark for when Democrats are in power, this is what we can do. We passed paid family leave. We passed the Equal Pay Act. We passed raising the minimum wage. We passed uh, the organizing. I mean, most of the bills that I put in there are ones that Democrats passed. So there should be, to me, there should be a recognition of that and saying, if we win all, all of these Senate, Senate seats, we've got an administration that's going to sign these bills. And that's huge. So I don't think you need to, out, to lay out this massive new vision that we haven't heard before, but just say, these are things that you can count on if we're in charge. I mean, I think that the Dems, I mean, I'm very cynical about them. Uh, I mean, from from the left perspective, not from the right. But, uh, you know, they removed something from the platform. There was a fossil yeah. fuel pledge. Subsidy, um, yeah. Subsidy, yeah, so, too. yeah, so they cut the opposition to fossil fuel subsidies from the platform. Um, they, you know, not, not embracing Medicare for all, which is something you did embrace. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, uh, something that I think the Dems get a lot of mileage out of just running against Trump. I don't think I don't think it's enough. And I think it's a way to not actually do certain things that their donors don't want them to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you get to say how terrible he is. And, you know, Pelosi rips up the speech. And yeah. What, but I, you do have. Yeah. And people people aren't wonks. You don't have to have like all the data and, and all the numbers. But I do think just explaining, you know. Yeah. And you even have things that you can point to that you can say that literally if we maintain the majority in the house, these are the things there's right. like list gun reform. You know, you can like literally just list them off and be like, these are already set up. The bills are written. They have already passed one branch and, or yeah, they've passed the house. They need to pass the Senate. So if we get the house and the Senate, we should, we should knock those out right away. It's going to be the same majority. It's going to, there's no reason that if it passed before it shouldn't pass again. And it, I think that that, that pressure should be there immediately. And we should, we should hear, Biden and Kamala say that within 90 days, we can sign some massive bills and, and, you know, tell me that that wouldn't inspire some people, right? Like, even if it's not something as huge as Medicare for all, which I know is going to just be a, I know from the the technical side, like how you actually craft that policy, it's going to be a freaking nightmare. And I'm not even talking about the lobbyists that are going to be right. trying to, to, to mess with things. It's just going to be hard. Yeah. Um, so I see that as like a, like a lot of work and whatever the next healthcare policy is, is going to take us closer and closer to that. Um, but you know, so I don't want, I, I don't want somebody to, to try and pretend that they're going to get Medicare for all done in the first year or two years or whatever. But you certainly can say that you're going to get a lot of these other things done because you've got a legislature that's going to work with you on it. Speaking of things that are, you know, they're difficult that are hard. Uh, um, having interviewed uh, members of Congress in the past, a lot of people always talk about when they first get to Congress, how amazed they are at how Byzantine and and uh, convoluted the system is. You know, oh my God, I had no idea that the Rules Committee is this is this complicated, and you have to do these nineteen different things in order to get a, a bill to the floor. What was for you the most surprising or or strange? Uh, discovery upon getting to the house about how the, how that place works. Oh yeah, the procedures are wild. Like they're they're not ones that you even 
that you that you totally grasp at all. Like there's there are parliamentary there are parliamentary procedures and, and a parliamentarian who's making sure that you're following all these procedures uh, that most members of Congress like never really get unless you're part of the rules committee or unless you're you know you you actively have a, a reason to be involved in these. Um, so it's it yeah those those pieces are just insane. I also I also didn't realize just how how things get prioritized and how much um, how many things get lumped into these big must pass bills, like how important appropriations bills are because of what else gets into them. And it's, I don't think that that's a, you know, I, I don't see it as, as a bad thing necessarily. I think that when we've got this hyper-partisan um, environment where Republicans don't want to work with us on anything, then pretty much your only leverage, your only negotiating power is keeping the government open or funding the military. Like those are the two that you can you can put things into that. So, for example, we got we got paid family leave in for the first time into the the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Bill, um, that I was that I worked on as part of Armed Services. But like we couldn't have gotten that done independently. We couldn't have gotten that done at all if it weren't for the NDAA. And there are a whole bunch of things within appropriation, increased funding for certain programs, including social programs and these other priorities that that you know, as a standalone issue wouldn't work at all. Not because there's a lack of will on one side, but because there's no ability to do that uh, with the other side. So that was really interesting for me. And it, it's something that I think, um, you know, would be helpful for people to understand better uh, how appropriations work. And I, I mean, like, I didn't even really think about this before. I always thought that there, there was a negative, that earmarks were a negative thing or, an, you know, a negative association with it. But earmarks can be really valuable, and like as a as a member, you know your district better than anything else. So if you you know that, like this bridge is super important for your district. I had I had a specific set of asks for my district that you know no no federal agency is going to be able to do. So if you're as a member of Congress, you're supposed to represent your district. If you can figure out how to get in earmarks, I would like to see those come back, and I don't have a problem with them. It's just you know, you have to recognize that how that's how things work. Right. And in terms of the uh, armed services, I mean, the, the military just uh, failed the, an audit for, you know, that took a million years to even yeah. take place. Uh, I mean, and the whole story of how, how it even got there is is an incredible shaggy dog tail. Do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts as to what can be done to a rein in military spending yeah. or, or, um, or B at least get it to the point where it's finances are understandable <laughs> to, yeah, and, and uh, can actually be accounted for. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, a couple things. One is, one is that there needs to be a, a mandate from high up that has consistent leadership because when you're having turnover of these secretaries, like crazy, you, you're not going to have anyone who's able to continue, who actually follows through with it, who actually follows through with the audit, who, is ensuring that accountability um, coming all the way up. So I had, we had a, early on, we had a few different um, people, you know, the Secretary of the Navy, I thought was really on top of it. The Secretary of the Air Force was really on top of that. They're all gone. Um, and, you know, even, even the, uh, yeah, I mean, just basically the turnover within the whole thing has been unreal under this administration. But you, it has to be a priority. It has to be something where you're having Congress bring them back again and again and again and saying, okay, where's the audit? What is it? And, and I would say that we have to set much more um, 
incremental benchmarks than saying audit the entire thing. I would say we need to say, okay, audit this program or give me the, the, you know, I don't, I, I would have to look at it to figure out exactly what, where we should start. But one giant thing is, is often kind of impossible to touch. I also think that we should look at, at the military as more than something for defense, because it really is, it is our largest subsidized job program for largely low income people. And um, that's often glossed over, but it's the, the military is the way out of poverty for so many people. And it's not, it, it doesn't have to be a war fighting thing, right? It doesn't have to be um, under this premise of save America world police kind of thing. Um, I think that what we should be doing is if we're, if we're already willing to pay for a subsidized job program by the federal government, we should deploy those resources and actually call them what they are and use them for transportation and infrastructure and use them for, you know, these environmental issues. And that, I think that would be a lot more effective than having troops trained for these military exercises that are never going to actually need to be deployed. The other thing is that there's a, there is a very real uh, job issue with each of these things that's getting developed. I was in a district where, and the reason I ended up on armed services, we, we were major manufacturers of F-35s and of the, the next bomber. And that would literally employ probably a hundred, the military projects literally employed probably a hundred thousand people in my district. So when you're, mm-hmm. when you start cutting those programs, like you are losing jobs. And so there has, to, if you want to do that, there has to be a meaningful transition into what we're funding instead. So it's not as simple as saying like we need a 5% across the board cut. It's like really where is that coming from? What jobs are going to be impacted and what can we, you know, what are, where, how are we going to spend it instead? So um, I guess I was more sympathetic to military spending because of my role on armed services and because I recognized how much it was, there were human implications that have nothing to do with, you know, wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, military preparedness or anything like that. Um, and you get a much better sense of the the very real threats that we have and uh, the whole s- strength as deterrence um, as a concept that I didn't agree with nearly as much as as I did after having spent the time in the in the back rooms of you know that you getting the intel that you wouldn't get on the outside. Yeah, but it's a it's a major issue and it's one that when you talk about big things, yeah, it's a, it's got to be. It has to be addressed because we spend so much money on it that it needs to go to other things. Did, did you suddenly become extremely popular with lobbyists once uh, you got the, the armed services seat or, or uh, the assignment? Well, I was never extremely popular with lobbyists because I didn't take corporate money. So, right. you know, their, their leverage is limited. The ones that I was popular with, it was because we had a, a common interest because I was already on their side for something or because I cared about the jobs in my district or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. So the, the Lockheed Martin and Northrop lobbyists did like me because I was going to advocate for those jobs anyway. Um, but it had mm-hmm. nothing to do with, like, I never took a dime from them. My predecessor, my Republican predecessor sure did. And I'm willing to bet you in the very short time that the, my, that my replacement has been in there, he's probably gotten all kinds of corporate money that, you know, they had, they had saved when they weren't giving it to me. But, um, but it didn't, it didn't mean anything about how we'd vote differently or how we'd, we'd represent the district differently. So anything uh, that you want to say about the, um, the Morse story? I don't know if you're caught up on it, but it looks like it was a setup or uh, a lot of it was fabricated. And um, some Democrats in the Massachusetts party, at least, uh, were 
were help coaching some a few students in in creating this narrative. How did you feel uh, when you were observing it? Well, I think that there's there's this very strong component of um, still homophobia or yeah. bi- in my case, there's biphobia and the sensationalization around it. Um, I think that that has to really be paid attention to. And, and, you know, especially now that we, we do have this issue around me too. Um, how is that? People know that that can be weaponized. Right. And even within our own party, we know that that can be weaponized. So, um, you know, if you see someone who is, who's a threat for whatever reason, uh, you could very possibly be dredging up things that imply somebody has done these things that they even haven't or taking it out of context or, or whatever it might be. So I'm, I don't know Alex personally. I don't, you know, and, and I have, I've only, I've been following the story as much as I can, but it's not, I'm not like intimately involved in it in any way, but I do know that uh, you see these things that are very much tied to, um, you know, conceptions that people have had around LGBT issues for a long time and uh, play on that fear or that lack of information. And uh, I hope that we continue to call those out wherever we see them. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah, on, so much. Uh, and uh, good luck with the book, uh, which you. was really interesting. And glad uh, you read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and again, and so so thanks thanks for taking the time, and uh, maybe we'll we'll check in with you again sometime. Yeah, we'll love that. Thanks so yeah. much, you guys. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. You All right, too. take care. Bye. That was interesting. It was. I think she's going to end up back in politics. Yeah. Personally, um, you know, she. She was um, probably on her way to being as popular a, or, or as well-known a member of Congress as any of the other members of the squad right. when this happened. And she's really representative of this new generation of young progressive politicians. Uh, so, you know, not, not that uh, it was a completely ethically uncomplicated situation that she was involved with, but hope she comes back from it. Yeah. I actually think the real danger is that we shouldn't, you know, there's sex scandals and then there's assault and then there's harassment. And often all of those things get called scandals, which I think really actually trivializes the assault and harassment parts of it. Well, anyway. And, and you know, in, in our conversation with her, it definitely seemed like a, a bigger part of the calculation was just the, the sheer unpleasantness that she was going through, that her staffers were going through, and also the political discretion that it was creating. Yeah. Um, and... You know, the it's it's an interesting question because Alex Morse, when faced with something similar, I mean, it wasn't nearly on that scale, I don't think. But, you know, he made the calculation that right. that uh, he had to stand up to it and keep going. I don't know. It's a different it's it's a yeah. tough thing, but it's something that I think politicians in the Internet age are going to, you know, that's that's going to have to be part of being a politician going forward is like being willing to go to put up with stuff like this. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Really, yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. glad, glad we talked to her. And um, we'll uh, we'll see you again next week. Great. Right. Bye, everyone. Make sure you rate and review, rate and review. Many, many stars. Many, many stars. Mm-hmm. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.